to the glory of God, I offer this. And it should be good. It's James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So if you have your Bible open there with me, James 3, 13 through 18, I've titled my message this morning, The Wisdom Principle. James 3, 13 through 18. James starts us off this morning with a very personal question in verse 13. Notice what he says there in verse 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? So this is the question that he's asking to the brethren directly, personally. Who among you is wise and understanding? James is going to show the difference between two types of wisdom. Wisdom that is from above and wisdom as he is going to call in verse 15, as you see right here. A different kind of wisdom that he's going to refer to as earthly, natural, and demonic. And the significance of this discussion about true wisdom is how James craftily places it on, on the hills of his teaching regarding the nature of genuine saving faith, as we saw there beginning in chapter 2, verse 14 and following. And then after his teaching regarding the use of the tongue, remember that glorious section in chapter 3, 1 through 12? In James 3, 13 through 18, he's bringing all of this together and then in essence is saying, So, in 3, 13, show me your faith by your works from James chapter 2. He does this in this question here in verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Because in the Hebrew culture, wisdom meant more than just simply intellectual assent to great amounts of information. In the Hebrew culture, wisdom was something that was observed in the life of a person. Wisdom was seen in how they conducted themselves in both word and deed. Who among you is wise and understanding? Wisdom for the Greeks, however, was different. It was esoteric. It was philosophic. It had nothing to do with one's morals at all. But not for James. And so when James asks this very pointed question in verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? He's, in essence, challenging them to examine the conduct of their life. This is why it concludes verse 13 with this. Let him show it by his deeds, excuse me, by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. Isn't that good? Who among you is wise and understanding? Then show it. I will show you my faith by my works. Let him show that he understands truth as it's relating to God's words by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. So, 
A life of wisdom is distinguished by what one does rather than by what one knows. Now, let's keep the broader context in mind as we begin here this morning in verse 13. Remember again, James chapter 2, 14 through 26 is an expose on the faulty doctrine that genuine saving faith can come to a person apart from or in distinction from a changed life. The mantra would be something like this, faith without works is alive. It's a living faith. And that's what James is exposing as being a lie, as being faulty doctrine. James is very effectively teaching and showing that faith without works is dead. He said that very explicitly, if you remember, in chapter 2. It's a non-saving faith. He said, can this kind of faith save him? And the implied answer, as we saw in chapter 2, was no. And so he demonstrates through the lives of Abraham and Rahab that genuine saving faith was that which could be seen in and by the life transformation of the one having been saved. And so he said things like this, verse 20. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And in verse 22 he said, You see that faith was working with his works. And 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or again, verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. I mean, James couldn't have been any clearer on the fact that genuine saving faith, a true root of justification, will produce the fruit of true repentance. This is why in chapter 3 he immediately tells those to whom he is writing in verse 1 that many of them should not become teachers within the local churches of Jesus Christ. James knows the dangers of false teachers and the spiritual harm that their teaching will bring to others. And so he proceeds in chapter 3 to bring attention or to put focus on the life, a life of wisdom of those within that community who perhaps have established themselves as being teachers, whose, whose lives do not demonstrate life transformation in keeping with genuine saving faith. Thus their teaching would be heretical and spiritually harmful to everybody, truly saved or not. And knowing that the tongue is a true reflection of the heart, James exposes the heart of man as being that which cannot be tamed. It's unruly. It's full of deadly poison. It cannot be brought into submission of the good master, Jesus Christ, on its own. The unconverted tongue, as he made mention there in chapter 3, verse 5, it boasts of great things. In verse 6, he said the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity, defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our lives and is set on fire by Hell, he said in verse 8 that the tongue, and again, which is a true reflection of the heart, cannot be tamed. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And verse 9, with it we bless God and curse people made in God's image. So at the end of verse 10, at the end of verse 10, James says, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. This is not what the man or daughter of God's life will look like. This is not what a genuinely saved person's life will be reflective of. 
In the same way, in verse 11, he reminds us, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And as we rehearsed that, when we went through that, everybody answered with the exact same answer, no. A fountain does not send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water. As a matter of fact, when we thought about it, we realized not only does it not do that, it cannot do that. That's how strong the analogy that James is making. That's how firm a distinction James is making between the sons of the devil and the children of God. Again, the same way in verse 12, can a fig tree produce olives? No. Can a vine produce figs? No. Can salt water produce fresh? Unequivocally, no. And so the life of the person, just as he was showing in chapter 2 is how you can properly discern the genuine nature of one's faith claim. Because the unconverted person cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. Can salt water produce fresh? No. Can an unsaved, unconverted heart produce the fruits of the Spirit? No, it cannot do that. So again, from verse 13, James, where he started us this morning, who among you, who among you is wise and understanding? Who among you is understanding what James has been teaching thus far in his right strawy epistle? That faith without works is a dead, non-saving faith, no matter how many straw men we create to make it seem so. That the tongue cannot be tamed. The heart cannot be tamed. It's restless. It's full of poison and puts on display the true nature of man. In the same way that fig trees don't produce olives, never have and never will. So again, I ask you, who among you is wise and understanding? You need you. This is you. Let him. This is you. You need to show it. How? You need to show it, James says, through your good behavior, your deeds, the fruit of your life, the obvious, the necessary and evidential fruit that will come from your life because a seed was planted in you. The seed of the Holy Spirit of God was planted in you and that seed does not produce vile wretchedness. The seed of an apple tree produces apples. Show it by your good deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, interestingly, think about this. This is where we typically our minds tend to go. James did not say, raise your hand and let me see that you understand and you're in agreement with me. Who among you is wise? Oh, it's me. I got you, James. <laughs> I'm with you. I understand. But we have to be connected with the Hebrew culture. Wisdom was not that which was simply understood. It was that which was evidential through a person's life. James is saying, let him show it by his deeds, his good deeds, his behavior. How many among us is wise? How many among us are professing true, genuine faith in Christ, but denying the power thereof? That's in essence where James is taking these dear believers Show it, he says. Just like Abraham, remember chapter 2, verse 21, when he offered up Isaac, his son? Remember Rahab, how she did it in chapter 2, verse 25, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
And just like James said he would do, I will show you my faith by my works. In chapter 2, verse 18. And so James is asking us this morning, by extension, all these 2,000 years later, to do the same. Who are you? Whose are you? Do you understand, James? Do you understand what I'm saying? And the great distinction between those who have a genuine saving faith and those who do not. There can be a lot of smoke. There can be a lot of words. James is paring all that away and he's saying, your life, just like Jesus said, you will know them by their, their lives, the fruit of their life. That's how you will know the genuineness of a person's heart. Your heart puts on display, your tongue puts on display that which is in the heart. And here at the end of verse 13, notice it says, in the gentleness of wisdom. Do all this in the gentleness of wisdom. Isn't that good? In the gentleness of wisdom. In other words, it's not something that you're awkwardly forcing. There's a, there's a gentleness in your life. There's a, there's a natural gentleness in your life and the way that you're living because you're a child of God. Remember Philippians 2.13, God's at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure. That's why it's not some awkwardly forced thing. You're not thinking, oh, I better jump up on the treadmill of performance and start trying to produce more works because people are watching. No, you don't even have to think that way. There's a gentleness with wisdom. It's just a natural aspect of who you are. It's gentle. It's not an awkward, forced kind of obedience. Instead, it's a glad obedience. And you don't even care if others are observing it or not. Now you may say to others, hey, follow me as I'm following Christ because you're in a discipleship relationship with them. But you're not overly concerned with that. Are you following me? There's a gentleness about your life. There's a natural aspect of your life in doing this very thing. Do it in the gentleness of wisdom. Just be who you are. Just be who God has redeemed you to be. Just live out of the overflow of your heart that now has been set free. That now can actually say yes to God and no to sin when previously it could only say yes to sin. Had no idea about wanting to be obedient to God. But now it can. Just do that in a very natural, gentle way. Show forth your changed life in wisdom. So James is seeking to identify who is truly skilled in the art of righteous living in non-threatening, natural kind of way. Isn't that good? I mean, contextually, this is why eisegesis will never work. You have to keep the big picture of texts in mind. And this is why expositional preaching is so valuable and necessary. We're in James chapter 3, verse 13, but we're connecting it all the way back to chapter 2, verse 14, and we're showing the thrust of his theology from chapter 2 coming to a conclusion here at the end of chapter 3. And it's extremely significant. It brings to light a lot of things, does it not? Now listen, in verse 14, James is going to then unmask, if you will, the unworldly wisdom and expose it for what it truly is, is which is that which is a deception. And worldly wisdom, if you think about it, is really our only other option. You're only going to be living according to wisdom that comes down from heaven, or you're going to be living according to wisdom of your own making, 
from your own mind, from the culture in which you live. As a Christian, we're either going to adopt God's wisdom as a result of being adopted into his family, or we're going to find ourselves living according to different wisdom. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. Again, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and notice where it starts, in your heart, what does the tongue put on display? Jesus, Matthew 12, puts on display your heart. So if you have a bitter jealousy and a selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The truth that free sovereign grace both, both saves, that's grace, free sovereign grace, both saves and changes lives of those being saved. Do not be so arrogant and lie against the truth that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives for the good. Isn't that good? James is not allowing a doctrine that, uh, or espousing some kind of doctrine that changed lives are optional and can come later if you so choose to do that. James is not giving that as an option in his, in his theology from James 2 and following. That doesn't seem to be one of the options that James is laying out there. Hey, you can get saved, you can have a dead faith that has no works at all, and whenever you choose on your own choosing, if you choose to let Jesus be Lord of your life, then, then so do that. That might be good. No, that's, that's not even in the, in, the, in the cards. It's not even an option. It's an error. And James is exposing that error. This doctrinal error, by the way, was spreading like gangrene in the early church. We see this over here in Jude 4. Listen, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And where they've crept in is into the church. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. He's not being very friendly. You see that? Ungodly persons, again, being very direct, ungodly persons who, and notice, turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. You can say that you have been saved by the grace of God and you can then turn that into a lifestyle of licentiousness and think you can get away with it. Uh, in Jude 4 and in James and in a lot of other places in the Scriptures, we see that not only is that person not a believer, they're an unbeliever, because there's a condemnation that's awaiting those ungodly persons. And they have also, through their lives, not their lips, denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. James is extremely straightforward. Jude 4 is an extremely straightforward passage that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. The grace of God causes us to deny ungodliness. It doesn't give us a license to go and live however we want. To the contrary, may it never be. Shall sin increase that grace may abound and look more, all the more beautiful? Never, Paul says. You might say there's nothing new under the sun, maybe. 
I mean, if this was happening 2,000 years ago, we see this happening rampantly in the church of Jesus Christ today in our culture. There are so many people that, that attend churches and they sit in the pews and they sing the songs and they say the amen and they leave the pews and they go out there and they live in a very licentious way without making any connection to the saving grace of God or what James says is that can that kind of safe faith saved them, the answer being no. We have no knowledge of that because the gospel that's being preached across most pulpits in our country today is a very weakened down gospel. And I would say it's a, a gospel in error. It's one that promotes cheap grace, just like Jude 4. And all I know is that those people, those people put themselves up as teachers, James 3, 1, they're going to incur a stricter judgment. There's a condemnation that's waiting for them and um, I don't think that that's a very safe place to be like, yeah, I'm going to hang my hat on that one. I'm going to claim to be in, uh, have saving faith, grace alone, but I can live however I want to. Yeehaw, praise the Lord, hallelujah. I'm not hanging my hat on that peg. How about you? And James is making it very clear that's a peg not worth hanging your hat on. But notice, back to verse 14, notice, remember the two sinful motives that he made mention of? Jealousy, selfish ambition. He referred to it as bitter jealousy. And I think because they're, it, it's so severe that they're mad about it. They're mad about this. Um, jealousy is the fear of losing something you already possess, right? You, you've got some, you think you've got something, and then you get jealous if perhaps you're going to lose it, or if, or if somebody else has something that you really want and you don't have. There's just a... There's a fear of not having something or of lose, losing something either way. And bitter jealousy, like I made mention, is, is just st jealousy on steroids. It's when you get mad about it. And it's typically when you're afraid of losing something you love. Selfish ambition, on the other hand, is the, is the desire for, for um, selfish gain. It's, the, it's the, the ambition for being a somebody and being known and, and having the applause of men. It's a love of the applause of men. That's what ambitious people, they're, they're out uh, striving and, and desiring to achieve things. And it's not just for the achievement of the thing in itself. It's usually for something greater than that. Because what happens if I desire and I strive for the achievement of this particular car or this particular house or this particular lake house or this particular kind of vacation, as soon as I get it, I'm still unsatisfied and I need more and I need more and I need more. Basically, ambition is putting on the heart, these things that are in the heart, showing from the heart that there's a discontentedness. We have not a relationship with God. We love ourselves and stuff. And I can remember myself sitting in a church for many years, sitting up in a balcony of a really large church and hearing the gospel preached and feeling some of these kind of feelings within my heart. Like, I, can they just, you know, just as I am without one plea, somebody's got to come. Somebody come. So just one person come. I'd be up there, oh God, this is the only time I ever prayed in my life. God, would you just send somebody, you know, and, and my, our buddies, we'd got there and we started saying, well, hey, how about next week you go immediately, immediately at the beginning of the song and maybe we can wrap this thing up after one version, uh, rendition of it instead of 15. Now that's a stretch, right? Sometimes in your childhood, your memories seem a little bit, the fish that was like this kind of becomes like this, right? So all I'm saying is, I can remember having thoughts like, why would I want to follow Jesus? I've got so much to lose and nothing to gain. I've got the whole world to gain. And all this stuff about forfeiting and your soul and stuff, I, 
I said I believed. I said a prayer. I've got to the streets of gold locked down. But why would I want to follow that man? It's going to cost me everything. <laughs> no, thank you. I'm just going to be satisfied with having streets of gold, and I'm not going to walk the walk. I felt that thought so many times in the, co in the course of being a young man sitting up in that balcony. Anybody else ever feel something similar to that? And so whenever you feel those thoughts and then you start articulating those thoughts, it turns into, it turns into an arrogance. It turns into a, a vetting process where the knowledge of man, the wisdom of man becomes that which is, becomes directional in our lives, which is how you end up with passages like Jude 4 where people have figured out a way to turn the grace of God into licentiousness and be okay with it. And so that's what I did as a young person into my young adulthood. I found a way to live a licentious life, but I had my fire insurance because I walked an aisle and I said a prayer. And I was as lost as the next lost man was and didn't even know it. So if you recognize these things within your heart, don't get arrogant and lie against the truth of God's word, the truth against the gospel of grace, that when you truly get saved, it changes your life. It's not some optional thing that you opt into later, like option plan B, I can, I can, I can choose that one later. No, that's not the way this works. You see, whenever you, do you remember when you repented of sin? Remember how broken you were over your sin and that you would grieve the holiness of God and you wanted to turn from that and walk away from that and instead turn to God and live in such a way that we're in glory and honor to His name alone? Remember that? Yeah, I didn't either. I just remembered walking an aisle and repeating a prayer after, this, after the pastor and they baptized me the next week and then I got to go out and live however I wanted, whenever I wanted. And I had the streets of gold secure because they told me you can't lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. Which is true. And man, to say that to an unsaved person after they just walk through the, the, the jump through the hoops of the denomination, it makes it really difficult for people like me to get saved. You know what it took for me to get saved? Some of you know. It took me sliding off of a road doing 80 miles an hour into a telephone pole sideways and getting ejected from that vehicle through the car and body surfing down the road and miraculously somehow surviving that. To where then I started having thoughts like, hmm, what might have happened to me had I, not, had I ceased living at that moment? And the more I seriously thought about it, the more I started making connections with my life all of a sudden. I started having thoughts like, well, why, would God, why does God even want to save me or care about me or love me? I have no love for Him. I'm not doing anything for Him. I'm not living for Him in any way. All I do is love myself and live for self. I was having these thoughts... When I was contemplating what might have truly happened to me, part of me was saying, oh, don't worry about it. You got your fire insurance. The other part, there was something in there going, uh-uh, that's not, don't keep, don't keep listening to that lie. And God broke through that darkness in my life. On October the 12th of 1988, and he changed a heart. And he gave me a heart that loved him. He gave me a heart that loved his word. 
I was a guy living in a garage apartment with my friend. We were living in his grandparents' garage apartment, having a party over there every single night, Monday through Monday, every single night. And while sitting in that apartment, I wasn't in some church, while sitting in that apartment, contemplating the eternalities of God and is life worth living, I'm just floating on some big rock anyways, God broke through in a room, just me, all by myself. And I said that day, at about 10 a.m. in the morning, I actually truly believe in you, God. And I don't know if there's anything you could ever do with my life, but if you can, it's yours to use. I've made a complete waste of it. And I've never lost that loving feeling. Have I lived perfectly, you might ask? No, I haven't lived perfectly. Have I still sinned? Yes, there's still sin in my life. But the practice of my life has been one of trying to practice and get better at living a life of righteousness. And it comes from the heart now. And I was even uh, fearful for a little while after that, thinking that it might dissipate because I was the Baptist kid who went to camp year after year after year. I rededicated. I I don't know how many times I rededicated at the fire of the youth camp. And it never lasted, so I thought, is this another one of those kind of moments? But it never went away. It never changed. Something transformative took place in the heart. That's what the gospel of grace is all about, amen? That's what James is trying to show these brethren in a very direct way. He's not beating around the bush. He says, that kind of faith, does that save them? No, it doesn't save. Do you see the evidential work of the Spirit of God alive in your life? Because when the seed of the gospel has been planted in your your heart, the fruit that comes from that root is genuine. It's natural. You don't have to force it. It's not awkward. You love God and now you're learning to love people who are a lot harder to love sometimes. It made verse 15 make so much sense the first time I read it. That worldly wisdom is not that which comes down from above. The way I was living, but it was earthly. I loved me some me. Remember Terrell Owens? I love me some me. I do what I do because I love me, and I want pleasure in my life. It's earthly. It's natural. Remember what I was saying last week? I talked about doctrines of demons. The wisdom of the culture of the world. The wisdom that man has generated from themselves that's constantly attacking. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Especially we see that alive in our culture like we've never seen before. All the LGBTQ stuff. It's an attack against the very image of God. And that's why it's so vital and essential. And I said last week, it's doctrines of demons. I don't know if some of you thought that was a little bit of a far-reached statement, but right here the next week, I told you I'd show you from 3.15. That kind of wisdom is not from heaven. It's demonic. It's doctrines of demons. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be comprised of people who use their tongues because it's coming from a heart that doesn't affirm things that would be sinful behavior. Doubly damning the person, making them think, oh, well, we love you and it's okay. No, we, don't need, we need to say we love you, but it's not okay in the eyes of God. No sexually immoral person will inherit the kingdom of God. It says it right here. Let me show you. 
And the good news is, is that both, such were some of us, but we were washed and we were cleansed. That's what the gospel of grace is all about. Life transformation. We're all sinners in need of saving. Amen? So James says in 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder in every evil thing. He said earlier in James 3 that the tongue was the source of the world of iniquity, remember? All, all around the world, all the iniquity, all the brokenness stems from sin, sinful hearts, Sinful hearts, they're in rebellion against God. They haven't been set free to love God from their hearts, and so they love themselves. And we see disorder, and we see every evil thing abounding. And as I mentioned last week, this American experience was founded upon the principles of Judeo-Christianity. And so in principle, remember, everybody for about 200 years kind of looked like maybe a Christian. Some people even wrongly associated America as being a Christian nation, remember? We're not saying that anymore. And some of the old guard are upset about it. Because they like the idea that in principle we're a Christian nation. But in reality we're just a nation made up of a bunch of sinners that are in need of grace. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await the Savior. That's where our true affinity is. We sometimes make way too much of what's going on down here and we have some, some kind of patriotic, nationalistic pride. Listen, my pride is in the Lord Jesus Christ who changes lives and transforms them for good forever. I pledge my allegiance to Him alone. Do I love my country? Absolutely. Do I love the people of this country? Absolutely, unequivocally. And so I preach and I plead for people to turn to Christ everywhere I go because that's how I can best love people. Because that's how I needed somebody to best love me. I was lost and in need of grace. I needed the gospel. This disorder in every evil thing shows itself in so many, in so many ways across the land. Racial, ethnic, social divisions... Divorce rate that's at an all-time high. The, the abundance of lawsuits everywhere about everything. Personal resentment towards so many things, just bitterness, anger. We see this all over the place. And so when you have time, notice how I'm going to speed you up here, right here, ready, watch this. And so if you have time, you can read Matthew 7, 13 through 23. The narrow way is Jesus. There's a narrow gate. We need to tell people about Jesus. In 1 John 3, 7 through 10, this is where John says that the distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. I mean, it's just that simple nor the one who loves his brother. The fulfillment of the law is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. When the seed is planted in the heart of a changed person, it changes their lives for good and for time and eternity. Amen? 
Go back and read this passage and even read it in its broader context. Key word being practice. Practice. What's the true interest, true desires of your heart? Remember, Jesus appeared for the purpose of doing away with the works of the devil, and in particular, in your life. Remember the uh, worldly demonic oppression that he was talking about back here? Wisdom that's not from heaven is demonic, right? We can't forget these truths. Jesus appeared for the purpose of destroying the works of the devil in your life. That's what the gospel of grace does. And it changes a life for good. Amen? But notice verse 17. Wisdom from heaven affirms the gospel of grace. Jesus said, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Now, when you think about pure, that word there in the Greek just simply means undefiled. It's an undefilement. And so in its most general and broad context, there's just an, an undefilement from the world. Living according to wisdom that's from above has a particular look, and it looks pure. It's, it's not being defiled by the things of the world. And in particular, we could go into the whole moral aspect of God's morality, of living according to God's standards, the things that he calls abominations. We don't endorse those things. So it's pure. It's peaceable. The children of God are peace-loving. Think of the beatitude, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God's people, His sons and daughters, who live according to wisdom, seek to live peaceable lives of humility, as well as gentle. Gentle, the beatitudes, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I made mention to you earlier when we started the book of James that some thought that James was just simply James' commentary on his half-brother Jesus' teaching. Remember, Jesus from the Beatitudes, we see James pulling these things in almost directly all throughout his epistle. God's people are gentle. Does that mean that we let people run us over with error? Well, of course not. Think of 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. It says the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. But notice, able to teach. Yes, patient when wronged. And listen, verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's gentleness right there, right? That's how you love people in truth. They may come at you with their error, and you're, you're gentle with them. That's why you speak truth in love. If you start trying to hammer somebody over the head, you're going to just blow them off and blow them away. It says the bondservants not to be quarrelsome, but kind to all, patient when wronged, gentle when correcting those in opposition. And, and listen, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Isn't that great? God's people seek to be gentle in their meeting out truth. And notice, reasonable. We're, God's people are to be reasonable, willing to listen, willing to reason, not stubborn, stiff-necked, my way is the only way. We're to be like the Bereans. If someone says something from the Scriptures, we don't just bite off on it and believe it, but we say, that's interesting. And we're reasonable to listen. We're going to go to the Scriptures, and then if we need to come back and say, you know, after further 
um, observation and investigation into that passage, I've come to a different conclusion. But we're reasonable in the way we do that. We don't divide unnecessarily over things that are secondary issues within the church. I think that would be demonic wisdom. Let's see if we can get them divided, Wormwood, over things that really don't matter. Yeah, that would be awesome. Divide the church from within over secondary issues that don't even matter. They're non-salvific by nature. No, God's people are reasonable. And they're also full of mercy. They're full of mercy because they've been shown great mercy. We're not blown away by the, the unconverted person when they share their life with us and we don't say, oh my goodness, I can't believe you. You do what? No, because such, were, such we were such of them. Remember, we were like them, but we've been washed. And so we're merciful. God was merciful to us. We are merciful with people. And notice, and good fruits. That's a general statement. Good fruits of all sorts. Remember Ephesians 2.10, that we were created to walk in good deeds, good fruits. God has given you the seed, the true root of justification. Good fruits, good deeds, good works will flow from your life. And it's going to look pure and peaceable and gentle, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy. And notice, it's unwavering. We're not, we're not just blowing in the wind out there with every cultural shift and change, even the cultural changes and shifts that are coming within the church. No, we're unwavering. And we can be unwavering because we have a word that is secure in the heavenlies. It's unwavering. It's unflappable. It's a sure word from God. And you can know for certain when people are trying to, to mess with the sure word of God when they start coming up. Remember when old Billy said, you know, it depends on the definition of is is. Whenever people start doing that with the scriptures... You know for certain that you want to run from such people. They start coming up with fanciful definitions for words that aren't even in Greek lexicons anywhere to be found. And they don't keep them in context. They do eisegesis work as well. They get one little verse, they change the meaning of some words, and they build an entire doctrine upon one verse. And they say, oh, but it's in the Word of God. Yeah, it is in the Word of God, but it's also in the Word of God in a context. And context is king because in the context is where words then get their shapes and variations. And the lexicons are helpful. They will show you some of those shades and variations of meanings of words within the broader context. I feel a little bit better. I'm sorry. I just vented my spleen just a little bit there. But that, I, oh, I get so tired of people acting like they're the professional theologian. They've hardly even read a book on theology, but they know what they know. Oh, I hear that so many times. Wow. But I have to be what? Reasonable. I have to be full of mercy. That's what pastors do. And keep bearing good fruits. But I'm going to be unwavering. And it's without hypocrisy. You don't say one thing and go do another. <laughs> Can from the same spring come fresh water and bitter water? Hypocrisy. Who did Jesus hammer the hardest? the unconverted, unsaved religious leaders of his day for their hypocrisy. You say one thing and you do this. Children of God seek with everything they have to not be like that. Douglas Moo in his commentary on James said it this way. I thought this was really insightful. He said, listen to this, or look, look and listen. Like true faith, James 2, 14 through 26, true wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. Oh, man, that's good. 
The person characterized by wisdom from heaven will be stable, trustworthy, transparent, the kind of person consistently displaying the virtues of wisdom and on whom one can rely for advice and counsel. That is a great word right there. True wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. Amen. Because Philippians 2.13, I mentioned earlier, who's at work in you? God. True child of God, God's at work in you to do what? To produce in you the life of Christ, Christ's likeness, the fruits of the Spirit, from one level of glory to another level of glory in Christ Jesus, all for the glory of God. It's that simple. Amen? And so in verse 18, in wrapping up this chapter 3, he says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, this is the New American Standard that you're, you're seeing on the screen right here. And see these two words right here? Seed and whose? Um, that's, that was added. Those words were added because in, the thought went something like this. You don't sow fruit you sow seed. And so it seems that these two words were added in, in the New American. If you go to some other translations, it might be a little bit different. In the uh, ESV, this word fruit here is just the word harvest. But a, a more literal translation, and I think it makes perfect sense, it, says, it would go like this, and the harvest or the fruit of righteousness, the harvest or the fruit of righteousness which comes as a result of genuine saving faith, which James has been driving us towards from James chapter 2.14, is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, the true child of God's righteous deeds is that which they are sowing day after day after day, and they do that in peace. They're not hammering people over the head. They're letting their light shine in such a way that people may say, how do you know that you can be assured that you're going to go to heaven when you die? You seem to live differently than other people. And they say, see that because that person's fruit of righteousness is sown daily in peace by those, God's children, who make peace. They're peacemakers. They understand Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Romans 5, if you want peace with God, you need to know Jesus. Know Jesus, know peace. No Jesus, no peace, right? Get it? Yeah, you've seen the bumper sticker. It's a good one. That's what James is saying. And so, brothers and sisters, listen. James has very articulately narrowed his argument down, and he has proven unequivocally that the gospel of grace should and does change lives. If your life hasn't been changed by the dynamic gospel of grace, of coming to faith, by grace alone, not, it's apart from works. Works had nothing to do with it. But once you get saved and you get the root of justification, if you don't see a changed life, James is saying what? Man, you need to check your spiritual pulse. Peter said it most effectively. You need to make all the more certain of his choosing and calling you brethren, right? That's what James is saying, and he has put an expose, what I'm calling it, against cheap grace. It needs to be rooted out under every rock that it tries to get planted and take root in. It's getting rooted in unconverted hearts with people who think they are converted. And it's not the gospel according to Jesus. Read Jesus, read Jesus Matthew 7. 
You will know them by their fruits, by their lives. Good trees, he said, produce good fruit. Bad trees, bad fruit. What has James just said? Same thing. Jude 4, same thing. Peter 1, same thing. I could walk you all the way through the epistles and show you the reality that the gospel changes lives for good. It's not an optional thing that you come to afterwards later somehow when you feel like it. It's not on your terms. God didn't save you and say, but hey, you do whatever you want. I'm just God. You, yeah, you're you. You've been God of your own mind for, in making forever. I don't, I'm not going to interfere. No, Jesus said you have to be willing to die to yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Don't pick up a cross and start following Jesus unless you're willing to die to yourself. That's the gospel according to Jesus and James and Paul and Peter and Jude. It's the true gospel. And James is making this evidently clear. Amen? And I'm telling you, it's an epidemic within the Christian culture today. You've got so many unsaved, saved friends, you're going to not know what to do with them. You're going to start getting nervous around them. Like, how do I actually share the gospel with these people without them thinking I'm trying to share the gospel with them? Right? Find a way. And the first way you do it is by letting your light shine. When they tell off-color jokes, you don't. When they go watch the X-rated movies and laugh about it, you don't. You let your light shine in such a way that they may know that something truly took place in your heart that hadn't taken place in their heart yet. You follow me? This isn't legalism. This is love. Paul said, I would never eat another piece of meat again if it caused one of my weaker brothers to stumble. That ain't legalism, that's love. Because you understand there's something more important, eternal, than just your the enjoyment of a piece of meat or of some crash show that you shouldn't be watching anyways. Right? Let's go love people. Love God and love people and let's do it well. Let's pray.